hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. I'm hoping everybody at least had uh, happy holidays over the past two weeks, considering that things might have gotten a bit crazy, and a lot of plans, and I would imagine a lot of events that people were at least having the idea or thinking about trying to partake in kind of got cancelled all the way through, kind of in the same way that a lot of the stuff ended up getting changed last minute on my end, but honestly, what can you do? Things just do be that way. But at least for today, in the wind-up to New Year's Eve, and finally signing off on 2021, and hopefully finding something better in 2022, even though, to be fair, the negativity in me can honestly just say otherwise, that we're not really going to be expecting anything better. One can only hope. But, anyways, at least I'll quickly get over a small couple of pieces of news that went through, considering that not as many big things happened, otherwise, in terms of major dates being announced for a handful of shows and films that are going to be coming out at some point in the next year or so. So at least we finally got a date for The Devil is a Part-Timer Season 2. We're going to be getting that coming out in July, so that's going to be summer of 2022. Honestly can't wait. If anybody still hasn't seen the first season, it is a fantastically written uh, fantasy-era comedy sort of show, and it blends the fantasy elements with a reverse isekai into a modern setting with a lot of good comedy and a lot of good characters and a really good setup for anybody that's looking to have a good time. And Makoto Shinkai has finally ended up giving us the date for his new film that's going to be coming out later, who, who's the one that ended up doing both Your Name and Weathering With You, 5 centimeters per second, Voices of a Distant Star. This guy's been doing sh uh, like independent projects and films and miniseries and OVAs since the early 2000s, but he's definitely been coming into more of the limelight over the past couple of years, especially due to his last two films. So he's finally going to be able to unveil his new film, Suzume's Door Locking, or Suzume no Tojimari, out in fall of 2022, and that's when it drops in Japan. But something that I am much more excited for is that we finally get dates for Chainsaw Man. Not necessarily the animation, because we know that it's going to be coming out some point next year in 2022, but what we actually get is Chainsaw Man's manga is finally getting its second part, going to be released on the Shonen Jump Plus app in summer of 2022. And I am really excited to see where Fujimoto ends up taking uh, Denji and his story. And honestly, at this point in time, I'm just going to give the MAPPA staff as much time as they need in order to finally finish uh, the adaptation, or at least the first part of it, and finally get it onto the animated stage, because these guys are really high-strung and under a lot of stress and legitimately can't get enough praise for the stuff that they've been doing on such a small timetable and so much crunch time. So honestly, the Chainsaw Man adaptation could come out in December 31st of 2022, and I would not be angry, considering that... These guys just deserve a bit of a break, and they deserve a bit of space and time for them to actually be able to make this adaptation as best as it can be. And then finally, just recently, Odd Taxi is getting a film. Not a sequel film, kinda. The majority of the stuff is probably just going to be rehashed footage of the animated television series, which is what they ended up doing, considering that the main cast and the staff are returning, as it's going to be a reconstruction of the majority of the TV episodes to fill inside of a film's runtime, but they're also going to be continuing the story. And they're going to be giving us what is going to be a definitive ending to the series, even though the ambiguity of it and not knowing what happens next is what made the ending of this series so goddamn good but honestly it's more autopsy and considering that 
the success and the notoriety that it's been able to get over the course of the year, not only breaking all of the boundaries of the Blu-ray sales that they were promising in terms of getting bonus stuff, as well as it possibly becoming one of the best anime of the year in many people's eyes. I'm still trying to get a buddy of mine, Johnny, to watch it. Croc, I know you're listening. Go out and watch Odd Taxi. I know that you won't be disappointed. But now that that quick dollop is out of the way, this is going to be interesting because I'm going to try and get through this. Not necessarily as quickly as I possibly can, but at least well enough to give a decent idea about what I thought about these series and why, essentially, I was able to make this list in the first place. Considering that, like, honestly, if I look and, like, check the rest of the shows that I've watched, this is probably the most series that I have consumed in a very long time, considering with the amount of free time that I was able to go through and the different odd jobs and stuff that I was able to complete over the last year, and also for the fact that I finally was able to figure out and turn on a widely known technique for some and a forbidden technique of others, but I finally found a site that was able to give me the playback speed option. And if I wasn't able to spend and spin some of these series on one and a half to two times speed, I easily wouldn't have been able to watch as many shows as I would have inside of this year. So, for better or worse... I finally was able to get that off of my chest and finally at least be able to watch a couple of more shows on top of the extra things that I'm going to add to this list. Because as much as I would like to just say, hey, this is my best and worst anime of 2021, 2021 was honestly like such a good year for Western animation as well that I'm just going to make this into my own list in the sense that this was my favorite set of animated series of 2021. So at least I'll be able to cover more bases than I thought and kind of being able to get a mismatch. And honestly, part of this was because I was looking at the list with Johnny last night and he was like, oh, well, you're doing like a top 11. It's like, yeah, I kind of wanted to do something like a nostalgia critic and not be original. But then when I realized, hey, but if I include all of the animated series that weren't inside of Japan and fit them into my list, that means I don't have to go through like 15 honorable mentions and I can just say, hey, here's a top 21 list in 2021. And I thought of myself clever at that moment, but in reality, at least it just gave me a little bit more to talk about, and so I don't have to split everything up in so many ways. Which, regardless, I'm still going to be doing right now. So before I get into the handful of lists that I've got on the site, I'll at least give a little bit of a disclaimer and say that I will try not to spoil any of these series to the best of my ability, considering that everything, uh, well, the majority of the things I have on this list honestly get a glowing recommendation from me, but also to the fact that... I will do my best to at least give more opportunities to other shows that come onto this list. But also, disclaimer, for these are going to be a handful of shows that I'm going to be keeping off of my list for one reason or another, or for the sense that I didn't watch them. So, uh, like, Demon Slayer's second season, as well as the Demon Slayer movie, is not going to be on this list, considering that it's good, just not that good. As I thought, like, it did shine in a lot of moments, but then also the second season of Demon Slayer, we just got into the fourth episode of new content, so the fact that the first seven episodes were literally just a retelling of, well, sorry, six of those episodes were just a retelling. The first episode was giving Rengoku his own moment to shine before we ended up getting into the film, but I guess at that point in time, I'm still not going to put it on this list because it's so slipshod and so, like, out of out of the ways for the rest of it, so that's the thing. Mushoku Tensei, a uh, talentless something or other. Still haven't gotten into it, still haven't given it a chance. I understand that so many people... This is probably going to be the anime of the year for so many other people when they're deciding to compile the majority of the stuff that they've watched at the end of the year. 
maybe at some point in time when when a third or so season is brought out I might just give it a chance because of how set it is but from what I've seen it definitely seems like a show that I will love the setting the visual style the animation and the majority of the cast as well as the world building and the magic system it seems like everything is set up for me to love this series except the main character from what I've seen on the internet, from what I've seen from forums and discussions, from what I've seen everybody talk about as he is the worst part about this series. And from what I've read, it just makes it harder and harder for me to kind of commit to this series, knowing that this is the character that I'm either going to have to try to relate, I'm either going to have to try to forgive, or the one that I'm possibly going to be spending the most time with. And it is definitely tougher and tougher to like realize that that's the corners I'm going to have to cut in order to finally give this show a watch. But that's why it's not on this list. Um, I also didn't watch Skate, Slime Season 2, ReZero Season 2. I still haven't even jumped into ReZero like flat. So another one of those series that uh, maybe I'll give a watch in time if it ever gets completed to a degree. But it's also kind of the same deal where it's been a lot of back and forth. I don't know. We'll figure that out. Tokyo Revengers is also not on the list. Still didn't watch that. 86 is not also not on here. Uh, Vivi Fluoride Song is also not on here. And X-Arm. <laughs> Glorious, that is X-Arm. So, leading off of X-Arm, I will give, like, the most disappointing and my least favorite shows a 2021 because X-Arm should be on this list, but the only reason it's not is that because I didn't join in the meme-filled rewatches that goes through. Honestly, if I realized that uh, the playback bo- button was an option then I probably would have finally been able to give X-Armor watch, but at this point in time, I really don't think even watching that at two times speed would be worth it just to just gripe on it and add that to my list and wear it as a badge of complete dishonor. But anyways, it's really hard to just add this onto my least favorites of the year because through everybody else's perspective, it would definitely be like a lot higher on their list, but it's just that the fifth season of My Hero Academia this year was just incredibly odd in the sense that now my relationship with its source material is so much more clear-cut than my relationship with the animated adaptation. It's just weird in that sense, considering that I had a really good time with the manga this year, but the anime was just something where there were a lot of moments that I was legitimately curious about and seeing how they would adapt it, how it would be better, how they were actually going to be given the major moments and stand-up pieces, the content and credit they deserve. And the most I could say is that they decided to prioritize the wrong arcs inside of this and the only piece of information that is even relevant to the reason why they organized the episodes this way is that they had to work this around the third film. Because that is the only reason why they would give Class A vs. B 13 episodes of content and give the lead-up to the My Villain Academia arc 6. Because that was going to be the one where you were going to prioritize and flesh out your villain into something that was a lot less one-note and a lot more dynamic and a lot more faceted. But, I mean, the middle arc with Endeavor and his family was just good, too. Like, it was at least able to flesh out that how weird and fucked up that family was in the beginning, but it's just like, I don't know, man. I really just don't know. They, in order for it to land, the film to land in the middle of the season and line up a filler episode that kind of ended up working in tandem to get more people to watch the film in of itself was just, it 
completely undermined the success, or at least what I believed would have been the success, considering that I'm pretty sure the third movie ended up being the most profitable of the films and lined it up pretty well, because the film was fun, but boy, did it really mess with the pacing and the quality of what ended up being a lackluster season of My Hero Academia. And so now it sucks because I'm looking more so of the anime as an adaptation rather than a standalone work now that I've completely caught up and been watching the manga week by week. So it's been awkward, to say the least, to at least try and get that to work out in any way possible. I just don't know. It's It's been really awkward. But at least the rest of the shows on this list... are a lot easier to talk about because there's not really much positive things to say about it. I will admit that I did end up getting baited into watching Yasuke, considering that it would be... I'm pretty sure it was done by... Yeah, so it was done by MAPPA, as well as having, like, a good chunk of the people who ended up doing the sound design as well as the soundtrack for Samurai Champloo, and it's like, this could be, at the very least, cool. I'm not expecting a lot out of it, except for cool action and cool soundtracks to kind of, like, complement one another very well, and it could barely even do that. It was an incredibly slipshod, original sort of mesh that Netflix was able to commission and get on the board, but it was just so haphazardly edited, so poorly put in place, and trying to fit the pieces together one by one was just an absolute mess of a production, so good god, I just... I'm glad that I don't necessarily have to go back and rewatch that, considering that it should just fall by the wayside, and there's not a lot to remember it by, and there's not a lot for it to be redeemed in any way, shape, or form, so that kind of sucked. Kind of the same way as a show that I just finished, uh, Tact Opus Destiny. Like, it, the first episode, I guess the only reason that I ended up getting disappointed was that the first episode was incredibly, like, off the wall, and the dynamic between the three characters were really funny, and the intro episode, like, did a really good job, like, selling what essentially the power was. This was going to be an action-centric show focused around classical pieces of music. And the way that they were able to sell that kind of story was like, okay, cool, this is going to be fun, this is going to be dynamic, this is going to be interesting. And then it wasn't. And then they tried to focus on the plot. And then the plot was incredibly stupid, and then the villains were incredibly stupid. And then on top, to top it all off, I realized that only six or seven episodes into the production that this was a multimedia project not only collaborated between MAPPA and Madhouse, where Madhouse, I'm pretty sure, did the majority of the good cuts inside of the series, but it was also a multimedia project that was going to tie into a mobile game. And at that point in time, I'm thinking, I'm six episodes in, I know this is going to be bad all the way through because they have to reorganize and try and implement a plot that isn't a solid conclusion, but something that leads into the mobile game and whatever stupid story that they're going to be introducing into that world, and it's just, oh god, fine, I'll just crank it up to two times speed and finish it whenever it comes by week by week, but boy, was it something that I wasn't looking forward to. Every time, I'm pretty sure it was on uh, Tuesday that it reared its ugly head, it was just kind of like, oh god, this is this is just not getting better, isn't it? Like, just the one to two minutes of good fights are nice eye candy, but everything else, the fucking characters, the story progression, the way that everybody acts inside of this world, and especially the antagonists, if you can even call them that, are just, like, so fucking boring and horribly set up. Oh, it was just, it was a mess. It, it was a mess through and through. I, I, besides the fights, I legitimately can't find anything positive to say about this series, so take that as you will. Kind of the same deal as Disappointment, but even greater as Pride of Orange, realizing that because I don't know the success about the or how this show is going to be playing out and what it's going to be looked at back on, but if this is 
what production companies need to get an anime center to get an anime centered around hockey greenlit and off the ground like it's over we're never going to be getting a good hockey anime for as long as we live considering that this was a anime series about women's hockey but it had to be tied in with idols and it had to be tied into a multimedia project both mobile and online distributed game and it was still this piss poor of a project Oh man, I, I don't know. Part of the Canadian me is just was dying every week, like checking back in, especially where it's like, all right, we're going to the beaches, girls. We're going to be playing beach volleyball, and that's somehow going to incorporate how well you're going to be improving yourself as a hockey player because we need to sell those Blu rays somehow. And it's just, oh my god. And that's the thing. The worst part was is that the idol animations were fine. Like they were, they were pretty good. And honestly, one of the only good things I can say about it is that when they decided to animate the uh, hockey scenes, they actually decided to go through and 2D animate all of the shifts. The only major things that they had to do would have been the pucks and sometimes the sticks were the only 3D assets that ever ended up getting incorporated into this production. But, oh my god, it was just a pain to like walk through. And it's like, okay... At the end of the day, the Japanese women's team at some point in time is going to be beating the Canadian women's team in the World Cup of Hockey. Like, that's the end game. On top of the fact that some random Canadian chick must have been, like, stiff-armed into forcing herself to move from Canada and play in a B-League under-18 segment for some random Japanese team. I can't think of a worse scenario for, to like push a female hockey player to like go into it's like she's not even playing in a she's playing on a b team to get them back into a inside of the under 20 league and it's just so fucking tragic and so worthless i, I don't even know man well the monkey paw well the monkey paw definitely curled this year i got what i wanted i got my hockey anime and it's probably going to be the last one i'm ever going to watch except the last two were definitely more disappointed and well-regarded in those spheres because there was something good attached to them in the first place. And surprisingly enough, like, the second worst thing I watched this year would have been Promised Neverland Season 2. I would imagine this would have been the worst on a lot of people's minds, like, next to X-Arm, I would imagine, if that would have been the case. But it's just... I didn't have as, even though I didn't have any relation to the comics and I didn't read any of the manga or the source material leading into this, I was blissfully ignorant for more episodes than the manga readers could have been expected because they knew, come I believe episode 3, they knew something was going wrong and they knew it was going to be a fucking crash course all the way to the finish line because they were going to complete the entirety of the story within 12 episodes. And in episode 3, there was supposed to be a character that ends up getting brought in, and they were the ones that were going to be leading into possibly one of the best stories the manga had to tell, which was the Goldie Pond arc, where Emma is forced to fight for her life against all these demons. The person who is supposed to be sitting in the chair, eating a moldy set of cookies, inside of the surveillance room, waiting for our heroes to walk in and introduce them to the new hell that they have just escaped themselves to... He wasn't there. The chair was there. The room was lit up with all the monitors. The cookies weren't there, but there definitely was a lunchbox. And it was just essentially the not the team itself, but just the writers and the directors realizing they had to cut as many corners as they possibly could to get this thing down to 12 episodes and out the door. But they 
they just didn't do it. They just didn't adapt anything good, and they had to go with an anime original ending to finally try and complete everything that they wanted to tell and condense it in so much that it was possibly one of the biggest debacles and one of the biggest drops in quality from a first season to a second season. Because like me and many others, the whole the only reason why we were invested is that the first season is an incredibly compelling piece of television. Those first 12 episodes of the first season are a fantastic set of thrills, drama, expectations, sound design, directing, setup, like... Every part of that first season was immaculately done, and it was easily one of my favorites of the year, only to get degraded to this. That is something that's definitely going to be living and rotting its legacy throughout time, which is honestly tragic in of itself, to say the least. But I guess the last... Just to get over this last hump of negativity, I guess my worst series that I consumed this year, to no surprise of anybody if you've been keeping up, is just Higurashi's remake. Remake, Ni, Go, K, just, oh my god, it's, I've already talked about it at length, but the fact that it was baited into being something new, into into a more, like a Higurashi and Umineko cinematic universe, the fact that it was like teased as to being something different, that there was going to be a twist, that there was going to be something that they were going to implement into this series to make it new and fresh and actually get more people invested and bring them into the series and get a larger audience for something into more of a grand scale. And it wasn't any of that. It was possibly one of the worst remakes I have ever seen because it's a remake and a prequel and a sequel and a retelling and a time loop all in one and it fails in every aspect of those regards. It's, you already know, I've already talked about it at length, but I'm just going to end off on that where I, it is possibly my least, second least favorite remake slash sequel I've seen in, in just in any kind of medium at all and I'm hoping it stays that way and nothing else tops it because I already know something else that's topped it and I'm probably going to talk about it on a later video but it currently sits at number two at the pile of the shitstorm that are these adaptations and I pray that nothing tops it (sighs) okay enough of the negativity let's actually uh, go over things that I actually enjoyed this year so I was trying to figure out how to incorporate the films that I ended up going through to see, but there wasn't really an easy way to fit them into the list, so I guess I might as well get these out of the way. I would say from, you know, in ascending order, the most recent movie I ended up watching was Gintama the Final. I haven't seen all of Gintama. I think I've only seen about 100 of the episodes in total in comparison to the absolute monolith that is that series. Although, with the knowledge that I had, it was still a satisfying piece of entertainment that was able to go through and, like, pave new lines for the series if it ends up being the final piece, which I highly doubt that it is. It was a good send-off, but in all honesty, I'm glad I ended up getting to go see it in the end. And I guess the only reason why My Hero's third movie is atop that, even with all the negativity that I brought in the first part of this, it was still a fun and entertaining film. It was dynamic, the action set pieces were really good, The final fight dragged on for quite a bit too long, and the fact that I literally had to edge myself throughout that entire film just to wait until we finally ended up getting Yutaka Nakamura's cut that finally ended in the last five minutes of the film, that's probably really ballsy and, like, really 
brave of them to hold on to that cut for as long as they possibly could, but we finally ended up getting it. I was finally able to get some closure, and it was a fun movie. It, it was good. It was better than the second, not as good as the first. It was fine. It was fine. Uh, same deal with uh, Jose and the Tigerfish. I would say it is a good romance movie overall. It does get pogged down by some pacing issues as well as the twists that it tries to integrate into the story that doesn't really add and it takes away from it but i would still think it's i would still recommend it as a like good romance film and i'm i believe it's on netflix now so end up go to give that a watch and so let's see is this the final one i guess it technically is yeah the final shonen movie on the list so the demon slayer film same deal i thought it was good it was more demon slayer I don't hype Demon Slayer as much in comparison to, like, any of the other shonen that are out. Honestly, if we're talking about, like, the best first 24 episodes of a shonen, I still think it's not really breaking the top three anyways. Because I would still, like, put the first 24 episodes of My Hero, I would still put the first 24 episodes of Jujutsu Kaisen up there. I mean, like, it's it's definitely better. I would imagine a lot of people are still singing its praises, but I still thought it was good. And Rengoku was still a really fun character. Leading on, I guess the Heaven's Feel trilogy finally ended up getting its conclusion. I still think that the fights in the second one were slightly better, but it's like the dynamic set pieces inside of this like film are nothing to be understated. I mean, it does a really good job with the pieces that it has and the and the amount that they're able to do with the relationships between all the characters and how it ends and how it ties into the greater Nasuverse and how they were able to incorporate all of the characters in there. Despite me not having read the visual novel, that's going to be the biggest asterisk that comes into play here. So I can't necessarily say if its adaptation is done justice or not, but I still thought it was a really good conclusion and a really good set to what I believe is now like a five-year-long endeavor to bring the Heaven's Feel route like over to film and finally get it animated. So good on you, Photable. Good job. I still think they're trying to get a, tr- uh, like, uh, Fate and Nasu are going to try and ring you dry for any more adaptations that they're going to try and get to his work, so, I don't know, I guess we'll have to wait and see how those adaptations finally come into play, and whenever they do decide to go. But in terms of, like, a simpler romance story that I actually enjoyed a lot more, especially because of the color palette and, like, how quickly paced it was in comparison to the rest of the entries on this list, I mean, words bubble up like soda pop. I really enjoyed it, like, the... The past, like the pastel, and the there is a word for it that Pause and Select did on a video. Oh, what was it? Uh, Kogesha, Master of the Clear Line. So a clear line style. That's what it was. It does it really well. All of the colors just pop. The vibrant like sets of the mall that the majority of the story takes place in, as well as the dingy back alleys and the tiny stores that also take place for the majority of it. I really like the dynamic between the characters. I really like to see how they bounce off one another. Really good job with the finale. Really good job, like, with the opening to try and, like, fit that in. And it was just a real, it was just a really good time to go through and finally catch up. So it was nice. The Shirobako movie was also nice, too, considering that this was the first movie that I had seen in probably nine to ten months. It was my first time back to the movie theater to finally get an opportunity to go through it. And I was one of the lucky ones because, as I've heard from international releases when Eleven Arts sent it to Europe and when they sent it to the States, like, there were a lot of bad copies that ended up getting circulated around these movie theaters, like, through bad contrast ratios to volume being completely fucked up to some getting the 
a different language dub than they were promised. It was just, apparently it was a complete mess. Thankfully, I was one of the lucky ones that didn't end up getting cut by any of those uh, bad pieces because it was a really fun story. Uh, like, in comparison to the original series, I would still say it's more Shirobako, which is really nice. And I really like what they ended up doing, especially with the final project in the conclusion. It's just that the problems that were set up were kind of similar to the ones that were, like, got through, considering that this is the anime industry, there's always going to be problems with nearly every production that ends up coming into play, but at least through that set, it was really depressing to just kind of, like, get thrown into the deep end, and then slowly swim our way out and get the band back together and try and figure out what the rest of the story was going to be like, but you know what? It was still a really good time, on top of, like, even though the build-up and the payoff of what the final scene was able to accomplish it still, like, hit all the right notes in the best way. So I still thought it was a really good show and a really good, quote-unquote, sequel to something that was still given more than enough original polish compared to the rest of the cast. And something that I wasn't expecting to rate this high, because I knew the ending, I knew what they were going to do, or at least what the basic conflict of this story was going to be, and even through all of those pieces... The Violet Evergarden movie still lived up to its name and still almost made me cry. I was on the verge of tears and I was not expecting that at all because I knew the twist. I knew essentially who was going to returning. I knew what the majority of the conflict was going to be for the rest of it, but how it was displayed, how it was paced, how it was like pushed around and how it was just built and displayed for everyone to see, especially with this being the major production that ended up getting sidelined because of the arson attack that did end up happening at Kyoto Animation, probably made it hit that much harder that this was the work that they tried to get out the door, it, despite the tragedy that ended up ravaging their beloved studio and all the people that worked there. And it's definitely some of those things where it's like you... I still somehow cared for Violet, and that's probably one of the reason, the only reason why any of the scenes that ended up getting brought up hit so hard. But it still did a really good job in giving some finality to a story that they had been incredibly passionate about for several years, and coming off of a light novel that was the only one to ever win a grand prize in their own competition. And so to them and everyone at Kyoto Animation, I definitely can only say thank you. But then speaking of conclusions, bar none, the one that ended up being able to resolve itself despite its production, despite the amount of time, and despite the creator and his ambitions and his angst and his ambiguity, uh, like the fourth Evangelion film. So 3.0 plus 1.0, like it's, it did it. It had a satisfying conclusion against all odds, against all of the different iterations and pieces of media and stories and spin-offs and films and recaps and television series, despite all of that, Anno and his team were able to do the impossible and bring a satisfying conclusion to this series and to Anno's relationship with, with its work. It was, I will admit, it took a while to get into it. It did end up finally... It, it, like, it, it was dragging at pieces where it shouldn't have. It was bringing in messages that had already been iterated. But this is a different Anno. This is somebody completely new 
and finally free from the shackles of a work that has been dragging him down since 93, basically. He is finally able to say goodbye to Evangelion and finally work on things that he would... Not necessarily that he's passionate about, because there was still some kind of passion behind Evangelion for it to even get out the door in the first place after a production that probably went... I'm trying to remember, because this thing was probably in production for about 10 years, 10 or 11 years, for a film. Possibly the most successful Japanese franchise of all time. And it had, and it took over 10 years to complete just the final piece of it. And it worked. It, Regardless of what people say, regardless of how that goes, it's definitely going to be something that I'm going to re-watch, because it is one of those films that also garners rewatching something that is worth seeing more than once to get every piece of info out of it because this is it evangelion isn't dead yet it's going to be given spin-offs it's still going to have merchandise it's still going to have people that are going to try and come in and give their own unique spin and try and bring something new to the table but as for ano this is it this was his goodbye to Evangelion, and he did a fantastic job delivering it with such personal flourish and such empathy to a series that caused him so much pain. But pain is not why we're here. As, as awkward as a transition as that is, these are, for me, the 21 best animated series that I watched this year. There were a handful of shows that I did end up like watching in between, to like get through that weren't released this year, but I didn't end up inc- including those on this list because it's I don't know it, it would just make the list that much more muddied and just kind of like throw in way too many like specific like asterisks like eh, well why is this here and why did you like have to incorporate this and not this? Well, this is my list and I at least want to keep it somewhat <laughs> uh, cohesive and somewhat coherent. So I guess number twenty one to start out, uh, Komi-san can't communicate. I didn't jump on the manga train too early. I probably only like started reading its source material about 18 months ago, about a year and a half ago, and it's been a pleasant to to read, a pleasant and it's been a pleasant read. It's been a been a pleasant set to watch the characters like go and grow and finally like find their own ways in the world and the adaptation did a really good job. It's I would say it's not on the same level as Kaguya, but the what they were able to encapsulate with the basic relationship between Tarado and Komi in the first episode was honestly all that it needed to do, and it still would have ended up on this list, considering it's a very powerful and like moving setup of people that actually want to try and put down their barriers and try to communicate and try their damnedest to try and connect with other people, but they just can't due to circumstances beyond their control. But thankfully... This show did a more than well enough job to go through. The comedy is really hit and miss, I guess, especially with a lot of the early stuff. And when it gets put into motion and given, you know, voice and sound and something that at least should add more of a dynamic to it, didn't really do as much as I thought it could have. So I still think it's a good enough adaptation to bring in people into the series. And I can't wait for the second season to pop up sometime next year. And so for the first one bringing through this is going to be Star Wars Visions. And as an anthology series goes, it's 
it's still good, especially with the ratio of, like, good to kind of underwhelming. Especially, that's probably one of the only negative things that you can come across whenever there's an anthology series in of its sense. But, I mean, the highs that this show was still able to reach, regardless of the lows that were able to bring it out and through, I still think that, at least if I had to give, like, my three favorite episodes of the series, Akakiri is probably would go for number three, which would be episode nine. The Ninth Jedi would probably be two, not only because it's technically impressive as well from not only a lore perspective, but a story perspective as well, and what that insinuates to the greater world of Star Wars. This is also probably the episode that could be expanded upon to the greatest degree, especially with the brand of the Sabersmith, especially with a growing young Jedi who's trying to find her place in the world of the Force relating to her family and how she can essentially make a positive impact, as well as just kind of like the idea of a lightsaber that changes its color based on one's connection to the Force. Like, with being with one of the most striking scenes, like, coming out as six, uh, like, either five or six of the nine Jedi that end up showing up, pick up the lightsabers, and they finally figure out the person that sent them there, but they're all Sith. And all of the, all the lightsabers that end up igniting are all red, and it's like, yo, that's a really fucking cool moment. And then easily, which is kind of unfortunate, especially considering it's the first episode, I mean, like, bar none, I think the first episode is, like, the best of the series, by far. I mean, it is a sight to behold. It is like probably something that George Lucas would have imagined Star Wars to be inside of his head with all of his inspiration and all of his nuance to be like brought into that kind of world and have the technology and the fights of Star Wars be merged so well inside of like an Akira Kurosawa film with Ronin and Jedi and roaming squads of people in the middle of a war-torn Japan. Like this is, this is like prime stuff. Style, the design of the lightsabers, choreography, just the art style, as well as the dynamic movements that happen in between, and what the Force is able to do and accomplish inside of this, as well as the greater narrative of a Ronin who is trying to make up for his bad deeds. Even though he is a Sith, he will try his damnedest to make the world a better place. It's it's good shit, man. <laughs> it's really good shit. And odd, but then Going to the opposite side of the spectrum, I would probably say one of the better rom-coms of the year would have definitely gone to Horamiya. And it does a really good job, like, setting up the main dynamic. If, if anything, the main two characters are probably one of my favorite couples that I've seen in the past couple of years, especially when it comes to a romantic comedy or drama or anything that this decides to go forth with. I don't think... the Like, one of the only major problems is that all of the other characters outside of the main two are kind of just there and they try and float the idea of the relationships and the love triangles and how essentially any of that would work but i just wasn't as invested but whenever the main two are on screen their dynamic their banter the majority of the back and forth that they end up like going between each other was just so wholesome at times scary at others but in the best kind of way especially when they decide to think of how their relationship ends up being to that end but then yeah no it was just the majority of the episodes were a really good time, and if somebody was looking for, like, a good rom-com and a good ship for them to go and kind of chase after, then I would definitely recommend Horamiya to that degree. So, on to number 18. Sunny Boy was... I, I, I can't necessarily say I, I would have liked it as much as I did if I hadn't overhyped it to that degree, because it's just... 
it's Shingo Natsume. Like, this this is the guy that ended up doing the first season of, like, One Punch Man, and he had a piece inside of Space Dandy, and he's already, like, proven his craft to be more than enough of a good idea. And so the fact that he was going to be doing an original production at Madhouse, man, was I excited. And I would say the first half sets up a lot of good dynamics, a lot of good mysteries, and a really interesting world where the rules bend and twist depending on the different powers that each of these high school students end up being given. It's just that the last half was a mix between an anthology series going to different worlds and not fleshing out the relationships between other characters, and then what some would assume to be a lackluster ending to some degree. It's an understandable ending, and it's a nostalgic ending, and it's something that had to happen, especially with the direction that some of our main characters are going, but, like, it's it's just, that's life. Like, that's it. He's, at least he's doing his duty, and he's doing the best that he can with the world that he decided to choose, and that's more than enough that you can ask for. I don't, unfortunately, I don't think it was able to hit as many good highs as episodes in particular, more so than the minor stories and events that take place in between. Those are the more interesting pieces, but at least to the, at the end of the day, it was still a satisfying watch, and I was really curious to see what was going to be happening week by week inside of this really interesting and dynamic world that all these students decided to inhabit. Number 17, something that I will get to talk to at length in a future episode, I promise, Hopefully sooner rather than later, once we finally end up getting an idea on when the second half of this second season comes out. But The Owl House Season 2 was just a delight. I didn't end up jumping on The Owl House train until late last year, just uh, in time for the fact that we were getting news on when the second season was coming out. It was a real fun watch, a real, like a real enjoyable piece, especially with all the new characters that they're being brought out. The only tragic thing is that we don't know when the second half of the second season is coming out, and we know that Disney and their execs were kind of being assholes because they have no idea what to do with a property that ends up becoming popular, even though it's a surprise one and even though it doesn't fall under their specific needs. And so we're only going to be getting, you know, two and a half seasons of the show, max which is incredibly tragic because the characters that it sets up, the fact that it is a Disney, animated Disney product that is forging through within LGBT, like, main cast romantic pairing is kind of revolutionary in that sense because it is put at the forefront and because of how many different com- uh, like countries had to censor its broadcast in various ways to try and like figure out a way to get across the sides. Like, oh yeah, no. So uh, we have some buys here. Bi's, lesbians, anything that's not hetero, oh man, get that shit out of here. And it's like, okay, you guys really need to just fast forward a couple of decades because you're incredibly caught up in the past. But it's just, I don't know, everything that lines up with how the story is going, Because the only good thing that has happened because of the limited runtime that Disney has finally ended up giving Owl House is that the pacing inside of this series is off the charts. If that was one of the only problems I had with the first season in the sense that it was a little lacking at times and a little dragging just to kind of with how any other animated series does is that they do just throw away episodes that sometimes add a piece of the plot and sometimes they don't, but they have to fill out runtime and they have to just expand the world that these characters live in. But now that they know they don't have time, now that they know that there's nothing else that they can do, it's like, okay, remember all those ideas? Remember all that filler? We're cutting that shit right out and we are getting to the heart of the story. And it's doing a really good job with the mysteries revolving around 
the boiling aisles and how that relates to our own world, Luz's relationship with her own mother, how her relationship with Amity is going to blossom, what the rest of the characters are going to be bringing in. I really hope that Willow and Gus get a little more screen time as well as us finally figuring out what the hell is going to happen to Hunter, because we are legitimately concerned about what he's, what's going to happen to our poor boy. Like, I just want him to be happy, man. I just want... That's the, that's the best thing that I can say, is that the story in of itself has gotten these char- me so invested inside of these characters. It's just that the show has gotten me so invested inside of these characters that I just want all of them to be happy in the end. And they've been doing a really good job of the pacing inside of the second season, and I'm hoping that by some point in time next year... I'll be able to A, talk about the series, and B, we'll be able to get a release date for the second half of season two. So really hoping that's going to be coming on the rise. But then after that, probably one of the biggest surprises of the year would definitely go to the Itadin Deities No Only Peace, where it's definitely one of those series that even though it's been long gone, and even though it had like a really cutoff ending, and even though it like did a really like, weird setup, as well as the dynamic between not only the protagonist, but the an- the antagonist, as well as everything in relationship to their world, is still getting me thinking about it, like, to this day, like, months after its conclusion. Like, it does a really good job at setting up the world and the relationship between these immortal deities, where it's just, okay, we have to defeat the demons. It's like, that's your purpose? Yeah, our, our purpose is literally to defeat the demons. It's like, where are the demons? Oh, well, we sealed the demons apparently, you know, hundreds of years ago. And it's like, okay, so what is our purpose here? It's like, I don't know. Let me train you to the death, like, multiple times. So you, (laughs) it's, I don't know. So they're all trying to find their own way in this world and try and figuring out ways to just kind of, like, live, as well as figuring out their own purpose, especially the main, not necessarily character. It's really tough, considering that everybody is main characters in their own right, especially the demons that end up coming into play, with some of them being, like, one of the, like, like, best sets of antagonists and one of the more well-rounded encounters as well as obstacles that the quote-unquote heroes have to overcome. Because even the heroes have done some despicable shit to kind of, like, figure out their place in the world where it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just going to casually lobotomize a human to try and figure out how this body of mine works. It's like, I'm supposed to be rooting for you? Uh, hello? <laughs> it's It's incredibly concerning, even with the way that it was ended, because it's such an odd production in that it was not 12 episodes i believe it was only 10 or 11 but the fact is is that it was based on a source material of a manga that's been running for years that started as a webcomic became a manga stopped at the exact moment like just around the same time the production of the anime series ended up doing so the webtoon ended up getting like not necessarily canceled but the creator just stopped and then the anime gets adapted But before the anime got adapted, they ended up starting a new adaptation of the webcomic in a manga, but the manga is only like halfway through the anime once the anime finally completed, so it's just kind of like, I I was so intrigued, I really wanted to go and consume the rest of the story, try and figure out where essentially it went to from there, because the cliffhanger that ends on is like, really like, whoa, this is going to be a change, this is going to turn in the dynamic, this is going to switch things up, but I couldn't, because... Technically, the webcomic is only caught up to where the anime ended, and the manga is probably only halfway through the story that the anime was able to adapt. So it's like, oh my god. So you're telling me I'm legitimately going to have to wait at least a year for this kind of project to catch up to what it was supposed to be, because it's, I'm pretty sure it's either a bi-weekly or a monthly adaptation or release schedule. I don't know. I, I liked Eden Deities. It had a really fucking good opening, too. So if there's anything that I could recommend, this is also on top of it. 
Now, number 15. Controversial, I would know, but Wonder Egg Priority had a fucking phenomenal nine-episode run. Like, just, you want to talk about being surprised by something. It was just something that was able to tackle the problems and challenges and mentality and suicidal tendencies and just mental anguish of all these teenage girls from different walks of life and through different stages and, like, different ideas about how they want the world to be run. But the only major connection that all of them have is that a close friend of theirs ended up dying. The majority of the time it was done by suicide. And regardless of how misogynistic the overall writer and series uh, composition that was handled by one dude, whoever was doing the directing for this series did a phenomenal job with the pieces that they were able to do, considering that they were still able to turn around a lot of the misogynistic messages that the writer was trying to inject into this story and turn them into a much more positive light, even though I would assume that, like, all not all the ideas were stopped and given the same amount of degree of regard or care. But to be fair, it was still a fantastic series for the majority of its run. And the problem is, is that we know, even like partway through the series, like even by episode two, we knew that this was getting into production problems. We knew that everybody was just scrambling around the studio only weeks after its release. It was barely even close to be completed. And the fact that the first... I would say it's a really, really, really good story nine episodes in until they decide to go, like, completely off the rails into unimaginable territory that never ended up working and never got resolved. And then everybody can only just speculate and comment about the absolute travesty that was the 12th and final episode, which was understandable. But what it was able to accomplish in those nine episodes, despite its production problems and despite the amount of pushback they ended up getting not only from the studio, but from the time that they were given itself, it did a fantastic and phenomenal job with the pieces that it was given. It's just that the fact that at the end of the day, what they were rewarded with was legitimately nothing but anguish and pain and a schedule that rang everybody inside of the production dry. It was just a tragic piece all around, just exaggerated by how poorly the final episode went. And so I at least want to put this on my list as a reminder of this was a good show. Was a really good show with a fantastic dynamic between its main cast and a really good set of problems that they had to overcome and face and tackle together. But that's just how the anime... But that's just how the anime industry goes and not every production can at least have a happy ending, which is definitely tragic in that case. But flipping off to some production that was completely off the rails, not necessarily in the most normal way possible, but we're talking about the third season of Thunderbolt Fantasy. Orobuchi is at it again with doing an incredibly good job and not only expanding the universe that he's created, but do a really good job, like not only doing rug pulls where one would least expect it, as well as broadening the dynamics between the majority of the characters in the cast, Genrobuchi is still a really good writer. And that is definitely something that propels the rest of this show up to its highest potential. But regardless of saying that, the puppetry is still masterful. The sets are still great. The soundtrack is still booming. Where even though Hiryu Kisano is not doing much of it for season three, Kota Yamamoto, uh, sorry, Yamamoto ended up doing a fantastic job filling in. And so it's 
still like phenomenal. Like every time I think back on it, especially with what it means and what the next season is going to bring and how the rest of the characters are going to be like pushed to the brink again to try and figure out what their place in the world is now that it has expanded beyond their normal realm. Really curious, man. I am really excited to see what essentially they're going to be able to pull once this ends up going out in full swing. But now getting to something a little more wholesome, getting back to something a little bit on the comfier side at number 13, we have returned to the campsite with Yoru Camp Season 2. It's There's not really much I can say about this. If you like the first season, you're going to like the second season. It's incredibly comfy, incredibly relaxed. All, all the character dynamics are incredibly fun. Everybody like working back and forth and having just a really good time, seeing them grow and bond together and finally trying to go out on their own to figure out the wilderness and the camps that for themselves. And then, of course, finally having everybody giving the opportunity to go and camp with each other after learning all that they have been able to do. I don't know. It's it's so nice, man. It's just such an incredibly optimistic, atmospheric, and comfy show. Always set with a good cup of coffee, hot chocolate, beverage of your choice, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's your camp season two. It's just so relaxing. Whatever, whatever the soundtrack with all the scenic destinations that the cast is able to go and explore and try and figure out their own way around, it's nice. It's just really, really nice. Same with Dragon Maid Season 2 at number 12. This was Kyoto Animation's first major television series after the return of the arson attack, and the fact that something like this can still be made and still be filled with such optimism and such care and polish and positivity is just a sight to behold, regardless of the tragedies that everybody at the studio had to face. It's a really good follow-up. A couple of the new characters are hit and miss, but it honestly doesn't matter considering that at the end of the day, everybody comes together in a really well-realized modern world, regardless of the point between magic and reality and fiction and non-fiction, and the fact that we've got a dragon maid as a commonality inside of this world, it doesn't necessarily matter. It just always made me happy. Like, that's the very gist of it, both with this and Eurocamp Season 2. Every time I had an episode of this to watch every week guaranteed that at least at the very end of the day, I would still be happy. And that's something that is indispensable, especially in the times that we live in now. And so at 11, we have Beastars Season 2. So I still think that the first season did its job better than what Season 2 was able to go through, but kind of how ridiculous some of the scenes ended up going, how like wacky the majority of the dynamics ended up becoming, and what certain characters had to do to survive, it definitely gave it its own edge and its own flair inside of this second season in preparation for the final season that Orange is already currently producing and is going to come out either late next year or early in 2023. So I definitely can't wait for that, but... I still think that the highs inside of the season were incredibly high, just kind of blathered down by a couple of milk toast, like middling pacing parts in the middle, trying to figure out where essentially the story was going to go, especially with how they were going to realize the dynamic and what the main mystery still had left in store for it to be solved in comparison to the rest. It's just that, I don't know whether it was the cinematography or just the way that the story was told, and how they ended up moving forward with a lot of the plot points definitely was just kind of a bit hit and miss. But at the end of the day, 
it still did a really good job fleshing out the relationships between the characters and how essentially they're going to have to move on from their past trauma and try and build themselves as better people. And I think definitely Legoshi exemplifies all of those positive traits the most. He does a really good job carrying the majority of this season in more ways than one. Now this show in particular, sitting it at number 10, I just caught up to yesterday. And I was trying to figure out how exactly I would incorporate this into the list, considering that initially I was just going to throw this inside of an honorable mentions category. I was trying to figure out if I should even incorporate it on the list, considering that it's only just about halfway through its runtime, and it's not even going to get completed this year. But I don't care, because Ranking of Kings is easily one of my favorite fantasy franchises to come out in the past several years. It is something that I've been looking for in anime that I've only been able to recently find in manga form in the sense of Freyren at the Funeral, which I did a manga episode with Johnny and his friends uh, a couple of months back where we decided to try and give recommendations, and Freyren was one that I recommended because it was just something that I've been looking for inside of Japanese media for a long time that hadn't scratched that itch since Berserk, and that is straight, proper fantasy. No isekai, no asterisks, no incorporation of video game knowledge, no new technology, no worlds being merged between military-esque stats and just, like, giving everybody the opportunity to be a better person just because they ended up coming from Earth and they were just given the talent and the knowledge and the wherewithal to succeed with no barriers and absolutely no trial or hardship given. You're just the best. And that is why Boji is probably one of my favorite characters of the year, because... Ranking of Kings just hits all of those beats. It is a straight-up fantasy story. It is possibly, like, one of the most basic underdog setups that you can find inside of a piece of media, but that just makes it hit so much harder when you see him actually succeed in any of the challenges and the walls that are thrown at him inside of the world that he's able to go through. And this is quite... Not necessarily an expansive world, but something that has so many pieces lying under the scene. You have death gods, you have magic, you have giants, you have skeletons, you have the underworld, you have different, you have different pieces of curses that end up being maligned towards, towards the rest of our main cast. You have different people that end up being dynamic as well as given proper backstory so you actually care about them whenever they do anything related to the plot, considering that everything inside of this world is so much larger in scale that you think, but all of the micro-narratives that they were able to accomplish in just the 11 episodes that I've been able to consume up until this point is just such a good job in every sense of the word. It is a fantastic fantasy story, it's a fantastic underdog story, it's got an expansive world, it's got... A great characters, it's got great pieces of animation because this is done by Wit Studio, who is no longer held by the shackles and the chains of the Attack on Titan franchise. They're now allowed to go and do things that they've been wanting to do for years, but haven't been able to give themselves the time or the management and free themselves from the entire franchise that is Attack on Titan. They are now able to finally do projects that are attributed to the strengths that they gained over the years and for them to at least go forward and try and carve out new pieces into the industry for themselves. And if this is what they've been able to accomplish in the short amount of time after they've finally been able to hand the reins over to Mappa Studios, then I am legitimately interested to see how they're going to be able to finally conclude this story and seeing how that gets finished with its own adaptation and what Wit Studio decides to move forward with inside of 2022. 
I'm really excited. Can't you tell? And so just after that, for a show in particular that does have a conclusion that only just barely beat out Osama Ranking would be a sequel, kind of, in well, yeah, no, technically it is a sequel, and I'm not going to divulge that to you because that's honestly something that you should go and experience for yourself, because this is SSSS Dinozenon. And so a spiritual successor to Gridman that ended up coming out, uh, it was either like late 2017, early 2018, one of the two, is that we get a new set of characters, a new mecha, a new set of baddies to defeat, a new Monster of the Week formula that gets incorporated. Like, the one of the only things that kind of bogs it down is that we are having to focus upon the main characters and the main cast as the as the protagonists of the story, where the enemies and the antagonists are just kind of a little bit of a mixed bag. I like when they try and interact with the world that they've been forced into and f- trying to see them focus and figure out what essentially they want to do with their lives now that they're forced to become the enemies of somebody who is supposed to defeat them. It's a really it's a really good setup. It's a really good fight, especially when it gets merged into the Gridman series in more ways than one. And considering that Dinozenon and Gridman are going to be having a collaborative project coming out at some point next year or in 2023, I am exceptionally hyped to kind of see how they're going to be able to mix all of this, all these pieces together, considering that now I really love both of the casts from both series, and I'm really curious to see how their relationships and their and their dynamics change over the course of these next few adaptations in their next few years, but damn, Trigger has definitely got something good on their hands whenever mechas and a grand scale is put in front of them. So, Attack on Titan Season 4. You're sitting at number 8. Although it's incredibly difficult to top what you were able to accomplish with Season 3, and I was incredibly concerned in the beginning because I didn't know if you were going to be able to live up to the grand scale that was introduced at the end of Season 3. I still think they did a good enough job, especially with the amount of characters that they had to introduce to something to the, of this degree, but I'm not going to knock anything on the animation. I'm not going to knock any pieces of the production because the production still looks amazing. The fights and the dynamic set pieces that are still incorporated inside of the fourth season do more than enough of its share of work to settle it up. And considering how short of a time that MAPPA was given in order to try and make this season a reality, it deserves more than enough of praise for them to even get it off the ground. And regardless of what people think, I still think that with the characters and the places that they've been able to be put into, regardless of the roles and the different changes, the drastic changes both to the world and to what they've been able to accomplish within this one season, I legitimately can't wait to see how this story concludes in, at this point in time, just only a few weeks. Like, probably, I think it's at some point in January we're going to be getting this season. And its conclusion and to try and figure out where the world of Attack on Titan ends. And that's going to be interesting to see. But then for something that finally got its first piece of an adaptation into the limelight, we have Invincible's first season. It can't be stated enough how much of a powerhouse this adaptation like brought the animation from uh, like Amazon into the limelight. Even though there were so many different moving pieces brought into it, 
what it was able to accomplish not only in its first episode and its last episode, but everything in between, is definitely an adaptation that people have been pining for for years. And I'm legitimately curious to see how they go through it. Because even though I do feel that there were a couple of meandering pieces in the middle of the production, what you're able to get not only at the beginning, but at the end of this series, is just nothing short of a phenomenal adaptation, as well as the grand implications that it has for the world moving forward. And it did a fantastic job with the pieces that it was given, especially with what exactly they're going to have to accomplish in its second season, which will come out at some point, but oh boy, I'm really curious to see where the world is taken now that Invincible is finally being brought into the fray. Now for the first of a couple of series that ended up finding its conclusion, and to more than enough of a satisfying degree, at least for number six, I've gotten more than enough of a reason to put Fruits Basket's final season this high on the list. It's not a perfect ending, definitely with the majority of the antagonists that were that should have probably gotten a bit more limelight in the earlier seasons being brought in at the last minute, so not necessarily giving as much time to flesh them out as to being the genesis of a couple of the issues that have been plaguing the characters since episode one, but the way that they were still able to do more than enough and find a way to give a satisfying conclusion to the majority of the characters that ended up going through all of the trials and the tribulations and the pain and the suffering and everything that they had to endure just to get to this point, I still think in that degree it is more than enough of a satisfying conclusion to bring to this series that has honestly been a part of so many people's lives, even with the first adaptation coming out in the early 2000s, and the fact that the people that have been waiting this long to finally find this adaptation's proper conclusion and ending and see everybody off as they look towards a brighter future, I'm glad that at the very least it was able to stick itself in that landing to a high enough degree to not only make me feel emotional but still leave me satisfied. But for a more surprising season, at number 5, we end up getting Megalobox Nomad, or Megalobox's second season. It was something where I had a lot of hype around Megalobox's first half and then seeing it kind of dwindle as it reached the end of its first season, there wasn't really much for me to get back into whenever this second season was announced. I had no expectations. I didn't necessarily even think it was possible for them to add a second season on this, considering that it was just a anniversary project to kind of just send off Ashitono Joe's, I believe, 50th anniversary. So the fact that they ended up dragging us through the mud into the future of something that's so much more gritty and dirty and just nihilistic, especially with how the time skip essentially like flashed forward way too many important moments in these characters' lives to count. But what this show did, and unwinding and just pulling apart and reconstructing and refurbishing as well as supporting the characters and their journeys and the trials that they end up going through throughout this entire season, starting off with possibly one of the best story vignettes of the year by far with Chief and his Mexican heritage and his upbringing as well as him and his immigrant family moving over to Japan to try and find themselves a better life 
only, of course, to be pushed away by all of the native Japanese who don't necessarily want them anywhere near the believed utopia that they think they have. And Chief is honestly one of the best characters of this year, bar none. And the changes and what he was able to accomplish with his relationship with Joe and how that was able to bring Joe to his senses after years upon years of lamenting over his mistakes and his ailing health, the fact that he was at least able to go through and bring the positive changes that Chief was able to instill in him that he thought he had lost all those years ago, and bring that into enough of a positive improvement to everybody that he thought he had lost in his life. It's a fantastic story. It's honestly so much better than the first season had any right to be, as well as it bringing new pieces and new perspectives onto a show that I didn't necessarily think had it in him to try and figure out or at least expand upon one way or another. But all of the topics that it decides to cover, everything that they incorporated into it, added to every piece and story that it wanted to tell, and it did a fantastic job in doing it, more so than I or anybody believed that it could have been, and it rose above the expectations that all of us had placed upon it even before it was probably brought towards its inception. Now, this one would probably be the most controversial one on my list because of how goddamn high I'm ranking it, but I don't care that it started in 2020, and I don't care... If it's just a basic shonen adaptation, at number four, Jujutsu Kaisen's first 25 episodes gave me more entertainment and fun and laughs and hype moments than any piece of shonen property has been able to do in years. I understand that some of the characters are incredibly one-note. I understand that a lot of the villains are essentially just trying to look for something that is incredibly basic and they do bad things because they like to do bad stuff, but we haven't been given any kind of perspective or reasoning behind their actions, which still makes them suspicious and threatening as all fuck. Some of our main characters, including Yuji, like our main boy, we still haven't essentially given more than enough of a backstory, but we know that he's a good shonen boy, we know that he's driven, we know that he's talented, we know that regardless of what he does, he's going to protect his friends like a good shonen boy would, and his relationship with Toto is just like one of the funniest and greatest shonen dynamics I have seen in years. Everything that they incorporated to not only the fights, the soundtrack that adds a lot of thrill, chills, and absolute spine-tingling moments, as well as hype to all of the action that it decides to accompany with, to the shonen protagonists and accompanying characters that are sitting in their 20s, where it's like, oh yeah, no, this is literally for the shonen boys that grew up in the 2000s, and now they're trying to figure out their own path in the world. And so now, not only are they giving perspective and basics to characters in their middle and high school years, but they're also giving the perspective as well as different character moments for people to shine in their 20s. And it's just, like, the what they're able to accomplish, especially with how great the fights are, how just enigmatic and ridiculously hyped the music is, how all the character dynamics are multifaceted and like well-rounded so that you essentially care about everybody that is involved inside of whatever conflict that they're deciding to go through, as well as how like fun all of like that's that's also one of the things, like especially compared to Another season that I didn't end up watching, uh, I didn't end up watching Fire Force Season 2 this year, but I did watch the first season, and like, how much 
like dynamic weight as well as like care that all the female characters inside of the shonen are given they are all badass in their own right every single one of them is able to just like shine in their own ways whether it's through physical prowess through comedy through perspective through care through empathy as well as stand toe-to-toe with some of the biggest badasses inside of the series like they're a fantastic addition whenever you decide to like incorporate like any like standing to their character inside of the world and they do a fantastic job with incorporating all of these women to be badass as well as multifaceted and empathetic in their own right but to be fair the boys the boys are nothing to scoff at either like gojo he's awesome all of the incorporating teachers as well as nanami they're awesome all of the students from the different school they're awesome all the dynamic between the main three characters especially with I'm really curious to see what they decide to go through and push with uh, Fushiguro's character and how his dynamic to the rest of the cast is going to be going through because, like, his latent potential and what he's hiding underneath the surface is absolutely... It's given me chills to try and figure out, especially with what he was able to accomplish in the final, like, parts of the series. was absolutely fantastic. On top of the fact that even though Yuji is, like, incredibly basic, bare bones, he's overpowered for a reason that we still have no real information on on top of the fact that he's got potentially the greatest demon like living inside of him and how he tries to cope and relate to that fact while learning jujutsu on his own is still more than enough to like put it and put him with a special place in my heart and i'm really curious to see because the first season has planted so many seeds that will relate to future conflicts that are going to be taken apart at some point in time that I really can't wait to see what they end up doing with the second season, as well as the movie that just recently came out in Japan, and it's doing numbers. So if that is any grading to its quality, and especially with what we're going to be looking forward to in season two, can't wait, man. It's so fun. It's honestly one of my favorite shonen properties that I've watched in the past couple of years, and I really can't wait to see what they end up doing and advancing throughout the rest of it. So I believe I already talked about this once, but it completely and utterly deserves its place on this list at number three, it's Castlevania's final season, or at least the final season of this arc. Because season three was a little bit shaky in different places, especially with pacing, especially how, like, everything was just so, like, grimed down and nihilistic and almost nothing positive. Like, any positive thing that happened in season three, like, gets completely overwritten in the first episode of season four, and it just really left you with a bad taste in your mouth. And even though it was, like, a really good story and a really good adaptation with a lot of hype fight scenes, you just couldn't shake the feeling that it was just, I don't know, it was just, if you felt bad watching it. And that was probably the reason why it was made in the first place, but I don't know. But in complete and utter contrast to that, the fights, the reunions, the action set pieces, the villain that's been built up probably since the first season, but was finally able to be, like, given proper closure inside of this season... And all they were able to do, regardless of how, like, ham-fisted and way too fucking, like, easy and simplistic the ending turned out to be, I loved every second of it, dude. I was utterly blown away with what they were able to accomplish with every overarching story that happened inside of this series. I also ended up getting to, like, re-watch this, because the first time I watched this season... I just sat in a chair on my phone watching the entire like season go by and I was incredibly happy and ecstatic to see it concluded but it was only on a tiny screen. So when a buddy of mine <laughs> like shout out to you Aaron you glorious motherfucker the fact that he still hadn't seen season 4 by the time I like 
came back into BC and reunited and was like, oh, you still haven't seen season four, have you? It's like, nope. It's like, awesome. I've been looking to watch rewatch it on a big screen and I want to see your reactions to it. And it was a blast going through and like reliving all of the major moments that ended up happening throughout the series and watching both of us just pop out of our chairs and get super hype in so many of the classic defining moments of this season was more than a sight to behold. For its story, this conclusion was honestly everything I ever could have asked for, and I'm really glad to see that we were able to at least find some semblance of closure to the characters that we had been growing up and know and love over the past five to six years. So, really happy to see that this was able to get like the ending that it deserved, and it was a bombastic and spectacular way to end this series. Now, regardless of what I said in the opening of this video, <laughs> video, podcast, you want to talk about good conclusions, and number two comes Odd Taxi. I, and, like, easily, by far, the best anime of the year. Like, easy, bar none, by far. Just no expectations. I didn't expect this to be anything. Nobody expected this to be anything. I'm so glad for the people that, for, for those that end up watching every seasonal that comes out every year, because you're doing your due diligence and you're doing the Lord's work, because it's like, damn, I would not be able to go through because by word, there's the only way that this show could have gotten as popular as it did was through word of mouth because there was nothing leading into it that could have expected anybody to have any sort of hyper expectations leading up to this series, which is honestly one of the best things that could have happened to it because nobody was expecting it to be this good. Nobody was expecting the writing to be this immaculate. Nobody was expecting like God tier level of execution and setup. It was something literally out of a Guy Ritchie, David Finch sort of production. It was... The writing is easily the best part about this series, which is kind of easy to say because people would essentially like knock it a couple of points probably because the animation is incredibly simplistic. It doesn't necessarily do much to add to the story, but it's just everything else. Even then, the, the anime is able to, with stellar directing, to make whatever set pieces and whatever characters and whatever moments that they have to describe and push through the plot work to such a phenomenal degree. It is just so well choreographed and put together as not only a mystery narrative, but just a story that balances dozens of characters inside of its world, where it's just the tiniest circumstantial pieces and meetings that end up forming a societal web that is so well crafted that it would just look like a masterpiece and a magnum opus when viewed out from a different perspective and a different lens with all of the moving parts and how everybody is related to somebody who is related to this person who has been able to be caught up in a specific conflict or event or something that is so minuscule in somebody else's life but is so life-changing and grandizing in somebody else's that the fact that it all works and is put together in such an immaculate and impeccable way that I just can't find enough praise to give this series the praise and proper respect that it deserves. Like, the writing and the characters are spectacular and top-notch. It does all of the heavy lifting, especially with how simplistic the animation style is, but honestly, it works to its strength the mystery is all well sorted out, and by the time you figure it out, you're just like slack-jawed in awe and thinking that, why couldn't I have thought of that? 
everything relating to its world, whether it's considering that even though it is a simplistic city story, the way that it revolves around its mysteries and its murders and its plots and its dynamics and its characters and its relationships and all of the conflict, it's easily one of the best written stories that I've seen like in the past couple of years. It is such a phenomenally well-constructed and put-together story that I could honestly start, like, I could honestly have been seeing this be put at the top of my list come the end of November if that's when I would have had to start putting this list together. But I put in Star Wars Visions, I put in Invincible, I put in Castlevania Season 4. So, if anybody had been caught up, so if anybody has been caught up, and they know exactly how much praise I've been given this show, then without a shadow of a doubt, I do think that Arcane's first season takes my favorite piece of animated fiction of this year. Considering that its story isn't... When I say its story isn't as well-crafted as Odd Taxi, I'm saying, like, its story is a 9 and Odd Taxi's is a 10. Like, it's so variably close between the rest of it, but it's just... I know I gushed and gushed and gushed about this show for such an extended period of time, but what the first season of Arcane was able to accomplish, in spite of its taking several years of production, in spite of it being related to League of Legends, in spite of it being a video game adaptation, it blew by all preconceived notions of what a video game and animated adaptation could have been in every sense of the word. The story and characters are impeccably written. The themes of found family, lost family, your goals and how essentially you have to relate your own progress to the ones around you, how much you have to sacrifice for your dreams, the parallels and foils between characters in the first and third arcs, how the relationships between everybody else inside the major series has willowed and waned, but have also been grown stronger in the face of adversity, what the characters have been able to do and learn and grow with together to bring about one of the most flashy and well-directed and executed like animated series in the past several years. The fights are immaculate. The story is well, is incredibly simple but well-written. The characters you've already seen, tropes and trends done to death, but are actually executed with such brilliance that every character inside of this has their own story to tell and it melds so well together with every other piece of the puzzle that it has been placed upon. Fortiche has done an immaculate job in bringing only one fraction of the world of Runeterra and League of Legends to life and the fact that this is only the beginning This is only the first piece that we are going to be getting of Arcane, as we already know that a second season is in production. My hype is immeasurable. And if this is what the future of animation looks like moving forward, then hell, at least there's one thing that I can be optimistic about from this year. Well, that was my handful of favorites and disappointments that I was able to experience throughout the rest of the year. I'm hoping everybody here had a wonderful holidays, and I'm really hoping that everybody is able to have a safe, well-received, happy, and depending on how you're going to be able to figure it out, 
as much excitement as possible bringing into the new year. I understand that there's not really much that we can look forward to in most things, but I don't know. Animation has its ways, and at least it'll always be around to give us some opportunity to feel optimistic and to find brighter futures in the worlds that we will see created from next year and the years forward. Have a good one. Thank you.